Today we will be in Acts chapter 3, so once you find that, I invite you to um, stand for the reading of God's Word. One day Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer, at 3 in the afternoon. Now a man who was lame from birth was being carried to the temple gate, called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going to the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. Then Peter said, look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. Then Peter said, silver or gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with them to the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While the man held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. When Peter saw this, he said to them, Fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us? As if by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and the righteous one, and asked a murderer to be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him, as you all can see. Now, fellow Israelites, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders, but this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying this is the Messiah, that his Messiah would suffer. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may be come from the Lord, and that he may send the Messiah who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. Heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything, as he promised long ago through the holy prophets. For Moses said, The Lord your God will raise you up a prophet like me. From among your own people, you must listen to everything he tells you. Anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from their own people. Indeed, beginning with Samuel, all the prophets who have spoken have foretold these days. And you are heirs of the prophets and of the covenant God made with your fathers. He said to Abraham, through your offspring, all people on earth will be blessed. When God raised up his servant, he sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. This is the word of the Lord. So we have a long text before us today. We will be, uh, as best as we are able, trying to cover all of Acts chapter 3. But in order to do that, we're going to have to pause at certain points because what was written to its original audience in a way that was understandable to them uh, is somehow far away from our grasp often. And so what I'm going to be trying to do at first is explain to you a little bit of uh, what it would mean to be a what's called a model reader of this text. And then we're going to try by the end of our time in chapter 3 to appreciate the text as a model reader would have appreciated it. So uh, a model reader of the text of scripture is what uh, theologians call the, the kind of person who would pick up on all the nuances and, and 
things going on in the text without needing them explained to you, as, as I'm going to explain them to you in just a moment. Uh, if you want a quick parallel to this, if you think about a classroom, uh, teachers have what they call model students. And what a model student is, is it's the person who they sit down for the lesson, they come prepared with a, a notepad and pens and, or pencils that are sharpened, um, they have a calculator for math class, you know, they're, they're ready to go with what is needed. And not only that, but they pay attention during the lesson, they take notes when appropriate, they work on what they're supposed to work on, and not texting in class and, and all that kind of stuff. And so a model student is to a teacher what a model reader would be to this text of scripture. Uh, we would be picking up everything quickly and in a timely way. Uh, but the sad reality is, because of the fact that we live in the West, thousands of years removed from the context of Acts chapter 3, uh, we, we're not just born model readers. And so we have to work hard at becoming that person who understands the nuances of these verses. And you'll notice uh, in your text, depending on what kind of translation you have in front of you, there's a number of references in these verses to various Old Testament texts, either partial quotations or full quotations, that, again, a model reader would have gotten, picked up on, and understood the context of that we're going to have to do some work to understand. And as I said before, as we've been in the book of Acts and also in the book of Luke, you cannot understand the New Testament at all without the Old Testament. Everything that the New Testament explains and introduces is, is something that the Old Testament expects to have unfolded in this kind of way. So the New Testament and the Old Testament are mutually intelligible, and if you divide them from one another, you divide the ability to understand either of them. And so, uh, it is with that that we're going to turn our attention to uh, verse 1, and we're going to see a story that sounds a whole lot like something from the life of Jesus. So chapter 3, verse 1, uh, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, that is the ninth hour, and a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask for alms of those entering the temple. Pause as we're reading this. Think about in the Gospel of Luke, there's a story about a man, a paralyzed man, who has a similar kind of thing, where Jesus is teaching and this paralyzed man is carried to Jesus by his friends. You know, if there's not a story coming to mind, that's okay. We're going to keep reading and we're going to go to that story in just a moment. Verse 3, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. That is money. He's, he, he needs a financial contribution. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and his ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what happened to him. So if that story from the Gospel of Luke is coming to your mind, uh, it is indeed a story that is directly correlated to Acts chapter 3. And so, if you would, turn to Luke chapter 5 with me. Remembering that Luke 
is the one who writes both Luke and Acts. So if we were model readers of the text of Acts 3, we would say, huh, Acts 3 sounds a whole lot like Luke chapter 5. Particularly verses 17 and following. We're not going to read the whole text, but I want to point out a lot of those parallels that you should see. Uh, I'll begin reading in verse 18. This is Jesus teaching, and behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him and lay him before Jesus. Paralyzed man in need of help being carried by others to the feet of someone who could help him. In Peter and John's case, it is financial assistance that he is needing. Uh, in Jesus's case, it is uh, physical healing that he is seeking. But finding no way to bring them in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down. And what does Jesus say to him when he sees the man? This is in verse 20. Man, your sins are forgiven you. It's interesting. That's not in our text. Not yet. And those around begin to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And Jesus perceived their thoughts, asked them, Why do you question in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you? Or to say, rise and walk. Now here's the part where this text really begins to echo. But that you know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them, picked up his bed that he had been lying on, and went home, glorifying God. And amazement seized them all. And they glorified God and were filled with awe. Hope you're seeing some of those parallels. Peter and John are, in some ways, reenacting a, a significant miracle from the life of Jesus. They're doing so by healing a paralyzed man, doing so immediately by a simple command. And this man gets up, uh, praises God in response, and the result of that miracle is many other people look at wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Now, what's interesting about the Jesus account, which is lacking from the Peter and John account, is that Jesus first tells the man, your sins are forgiven you, and then says, rise, pick up your bed, and walk. But as you'll see in just a moment, after the crowd responds with awe and wonder and amazement, Peter seizes the opportunity to proclaim the forgiveness of sins to all who would hear. As you, uh, I just want to highlight for you there in verse 12, Peter, seeing this, addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or our own piety we made him to walk? It is the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, who glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. What is the conclusion of this denial? Verse 16, And by his name, by faith in his name, he has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has been given this man. It has given him perfect health in the presence of all. Conclusion, verse 19, repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. So Peter and John reverse the order a little bit, but there's all these commonalities. A paralyzed man who's commanded to rise, who is miraculously healed by the power of Jesus, and then that miraculous healing serves as an object lesson to everyone around that this person, Jesus, has the authority to forgive sins. 
And as you'll notice, Peter and John clarify something, something that Jesus does not clarify. They say, why do you stare and wonder at us as though we did it by our own power? It is by Jesus' name and his power that we have done this, and therefore repent and believe in his name. Jesus says no such thing in Luke chapter 5. It's because Jesus does not do this by anyone else's power, but he does so by his own power. What we see then, at least at first, something that I cued you in on when we were in the first chapter of Acts, that Jesus commissions the 12 apostles as his witnesses, and he does so, and, and, and in doing that and giving them the Holy Spirit, what, happened, what Jesus can accomplish and do, now his body can accomplish and do. So what Jesus did in his earthly ministry, you're going to see the apostles are now doing in their ministry as the gospel is going forward. Jesus proclaimed the kingdom of God is to come, and he did so confirmed with mighty acts and signs and wonders. He sends the apostles to do the same thing, to proclaim forgiveness in his name, to proclaim repentance and, uh, and turning away from sin. And he accompanies that testimony by his own spirit so that they might do mighty acts and signs and wonders. The point is, what Jesus did, his body is now continuing to do on earth. Or as I said in the first week that we were in Acts, the book of the Acts of the Apostles is the, books of, the book of the continuing work of Jesus on earth that he does through his body. Jesus does what Peter and John do, and Peter and John proclaim forgiveness as Jesus does, but making clear that they're doing so in Jesus' name so that no confusion is had. It is not as though there are now other Christs or other Messiahs who've been raised up. They're being clear that this is by the power of that Jesus. As they go on to specify, they're not just going to name him Jesus. They're going to say, you know the one who was on trial before Pilate? You know the one who you swapped out for Barabbas? That Jesus, who then raised from the dead, just to be clear, it was that person. It's by his name and his power that this has now happened. Maybe another way we could say this as we think about how this, this relates to us. The authority of the apostles is the authority of Christ. His authority is now the authority that they command as they go into the surrounding towns and villages proclaiming the gospel. And as I said last week, we should not expect then uh, for some continuing eternal succession of apostles with continuing signs and continuing wonders, because the authority that Jesus puts in the apostles, the apostles then take, can, uh, making the message concrete, making the testimony true and sure, and they put it in writing, and then they pass it to the church as a heritage. So that the authority of Jesus, which he gives to the apostles, the apostles then institute into the scriptures, and that scripture now serves as the binding authority upon Christ's church. He is the authority over us. We submit ourselves to his instructions and word as the apostles did in their teaching, submitting themselves to what Christ first taught them and what we now receive as uh, uh, recipients of their salvific message. This is important to understand because suppose you have friends or family or you've ever encountered someone who uh, is a follower of Islam. One of the things that's common in the Islamic system is to say something like, well, Jesus is a prophet, we believe so. 
But where does Jesus himself say, I am God? Where does he say so? Now, if we were going to change the criteria to contextually relevant ways in which Jesus would have indicated he was God, he certainly does say just those words, not in the very words, I am God, but he says things like, I have authority over the Sabbath, or I continue to work even as my father works on this day. In many ways, he confers to himself God-like authority. But in, in other ways, it just doesn't matter whether Jesus himself says, I am God, because Jesus gives authority to his apostles. And his apostles say that he is God, and they worship him as God. And they write the New Testament to confirm that witness. Believe it or not, the first manuscripts and the Greek language has no such thing as quotation marks. So we don't even know in many cases where the dialogue of Jesus is or isn't because there, there's no such thing as a quotation convention to know what exactly Jesus says. Many of his sermons and speeches are condensed through the authorial insight and intent of the apostles. So we don't need to worry whether Jesus verbatim said this word for word because his Holy Spirit inspired the apostles to record this is what he said and how he said it. Another way of saying this is if we can only trust Jesus' authority, but we cannot trust the authority of his apostles, well, we, we just don't know which parts of the New Testament are authoritative because they're the ones who write the New Testament. Jesus never sits down to write anything. They are the ones who write and record all that he did. So then it's, it's foolish for someone to come to the text of Scripture and say, where does Jesus say this of himself? Well, the apostles whom he put his authority in said this about him. And so it doesn't matter whether we have a direct quotation from Jesus or not, because his ambassadors claimed his divine authority. His authority, therefore, is their authority, as we see clearly then from the text. And as they make clear, their authority comes from him. Now, there's a number of other things we're going to have to do if we want to be good readers of this text. And that is we need to appreciate all of the Old Testament themes which are being invoked in these verses. So we've already tapped into one that Jesus has this authority unique to himself that the apostles then have access to. And as you'll notice, that authority is shared with one other person in the Old Testament. And that is the God of Israel. For instance, if you look at the quotation from uh, verse 12, Peter sees everyone astounded. He gets up and starts speaking. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us? Or though by our own power or our own piety, we have made him to walk. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate. So, Jesus' authority, Jesus' continuity, the, the unique place that he has in redemptive history, is in continuation with the position of the one true God of Israel from the Old Testament. It is God who speaks to Moses from the burning bush and says the very words, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of your fathers. He says this to Moses. It's a quote from Exodus chapter 4. And this same God is the one who glorified Jesus by raising him from the dead. But notice something else that the text assumes for us. The text assumes we're familiar with Genesis. Because if you see verse 15, when speaking about Jesus, they say, You killed the author of life. 
Who's the author of life in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1? It's God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Did so by the word of his power. Let's assume we don't have access to a copy of John's gospel. We're a model reader of Luke and Acts. Maybe we don't have access to John because it hasn't made its way into our Christian community yet. But we don't need John chapter 1, verse 1. It's not the only confirmation that Jesus is God in creation. Because here, Peter says in Acts that he, Jesus, the one who was killed, is the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. It is by the very word of God that he speaks and creates life. And it is by the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, that life is given to the world. And what does he say? To this we are witnesses. That harkens back to chapter 1 where Jesus says, I'm sending you as my witnesses into the world. And they're saying, here's what we're witnesses to. Jesus died, was crucified, was raised, and he does so to confirm his authority. He does so because he is the one whom all authority and allegiance is given. And so what is the solution? In verse 16, And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And that, that faith is through Jesus, that he has given this man the perfect health in the presence of you all. What we see then is, is clear. Another Old Testament parallel. Jesus is the name through which authority and forgiveness of sins is dispensed. Well, who's the only name in the Old Testament that has the power to receive worship and honor and praise and to forgive? It's the name of Yahweh, the I Am. It is his name which is worshipped and adored uniquely. What happens in the New Testament? It is the name of Jesus which is worshipped and adored uniquely. Or something which you might find interesting. Uh, if you don't find this interesting, it's okay. I'll come back from it in just a moment. In the earliest manuscripts that we have in the New Testament, uh, we have this amazing phenomenon wherein the divine name, the name of God, is not written in its full. There's abbreviations that we would use for the divine name. This is true even in the Old Testament text where the Masoretes vowel-pointed the name of God differently than they did the names of other persons or beings. And that's because they, they refused to pronounce the divine name out of respect and reverence for it. Well, the earliest Christians, when they're copying, they don't just reserve that honor and respect for the divine name. The earliest manuscripts show us that they abbreviate the name of Jesus. They abbreviate the name of Christ as well. They shorten it. So that if our Bibles were... Uh, let's say, as literal as possible to the early manuscripts, you wouldn't see something like Jesus Christ printed in the text. You would see the, the J, and you'd see the, uh, the, the chi, which is the, the K sound, Jesus Christ, and that's it. That's all you'd see. And there's a little line over it that indicates this is the divine name. We, we announce this differently, and we treat it differently than the other parts of the text. I'm not saying that we should delete Jesus Christ from our Bibles and just abbreviated JC or something like that. But what I'm saying is they're attributing respect to his name in a way that is consistent with how the Jews reserved and respected the name of God. And that's because these Jews who are converted to Christ 
see Jesus Christ as God because he is God. It's clear from the, from the text. Who, who is it that they're to turn and repent towards? Verse 19, repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. Who's the one blotting out sins in, in the Gospel of Luke? It's Jesus. He's the one who says your sins are forgiven. He's the one who has the authority to forgive sins. In Hosea, chapter 14, the Israelites are uh, called once again by the prophet to turn. And who are they called to turn to? Turn, turn to the Lord your God. It's interesting that the one you turn to is the one who can forgive you. If in the Old Testament, the one who the Israelites turn to is God, Jehovah, well then in the New Testament, it's interesting that Jesus is the one who you turn to and repent for your sins to. He's the one who blots out sins because Jesus is God. I hope I'm making that point abundantly clear. The text is full of all these correlations between the divinity and the deity and the authority of Jesus that is just borrowed from Old Testament imagery about who is the one true God of Israel and what do we owe him. So there's this reverence and authority for his name that is uniquely his. We'll talk about this more in the next couple weeks. But at the very least, we can say we should respect and honor the name and the authority of Jesus like the early church did. We should give him reverence and awe. When we sing worship to God, we shouldn't sing worship to Jesus in a way different than we sing worship to the Father. Jesus is personal, intimate, relational to us, and he is the God of all creation as well. Whatever we sing to Jesus, we should sing to the Father. And likewise, if we sing to the Father in a certain way, that awe and reverence should be maintained as we sing about the Son. For they are both the one true God. And they share this holy name, the authority that is there shared. So we have this name authority dynamic that's going on. Another thing a model reader of the text would have picked up on is this Exodus theme that's going on in the text. Now, I'm not expecting you to pick up on this. Again, I'm going to point this out to you. The quotation from verse 13 is a quotation from Exodus chapter 4. That's what God speaks to Moses in the burning bush. And he says, here's who I am. I'm the God who's covenantally united to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And what does he say from Exodus chapter 4 to Moses? Go and deliver my people from the hands of Pharaoh. Interesting that Peter quotes from that verse when he tries to interpret for everyone what's happening as this man has been forgiven of sins and he goes free from his previous bondage into worshiping and newness of life. It's because Jesus is the greater Moses. He's the one who comes after Moses and he leads the final exodus for the people of God. Moses led the people through an exodus into the wilderness, into the promised land. And but Moses himself says, as we read from Deuteronomy and we'll read shortly again from Deuteronomy, that, there, that he is not the final prophet who's going to finally deliver the people of God. There's one who is coming after him. And Jesus says, I am that one. The Gospel of Luke says that Jesus is that one. It's the voice that breaks forth from heaven says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. 
So it's interesting that as Peter invokes this Exodus motif in verse 13, that he also, in verse 22, quotes from a similar idea at the tail end of the Exodus. That's the verse from Deuteronomy. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed or shall be cut off from the people. What we see then is that Jesus is both invoked at the beginning of the Exodus account, here in verse 13, and he is invoked as the one who is the prophet to seed Moses at the end of the Exodus narrative, the, the final and great Exodus. And again, a reader who, someone who would grow up reading Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy from childhood on upward, as a Jewish family would have done, would, would pick up on these references right away and see, oh, what Jesus is being attributed to him is the same thing that happened with Moses. He was called from the burning bush to deliver his people in the Exodus, and he says that there's a prophet coming. And then Peter says, Jesus is the one who was raised up by this God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he's the one who is the final prophet who Moses spoke of. So there's this Exodus motif. And by the way, that's not just spiritualizing the text of Scripture. Because it is also true that when we turn from our sins and our bondage to sin, that we do experience life and life abundantly in a way that we could not have under the slavery of sin. It is popular, I think, unfortunately, for Christians to believe that obedience to Christ is really bondage and participation in sin is really where freedom is. That as we exist on earth, what we're really trying to do is hem ourselves in in obedience to God, even though that's worse for us here on earth. You know, and then when we get to heaven, we'll get a reward uh, where we get to enjoy things once again. Actually, the, what Paul says in, in Romans and what the authors of Scripture say all over the place is that wisdom is following the voice of God. If you want to know what is a good life, a life well-lived, it is not a life of hedonism, of pleasure, of totally giving yourself over to your emotions and to your lusts and to whatever you want to do. And actually, there, there's many modern thinkers who agree with that sentiment. Many, many people, even throughout history, would describe what is a well-lived life. And not one of them would say that totally giving yourself over to hedonism and pleasure is a well-lived life. Even from the earliest philosophers like Plato and Socrates and Aristotle, they spoke of a life well-lived, uh, something they termed eudaimia, uh, a life that is well-lived, and they would say that it's a life lived in balance and in wisdom and in temperance. That to give oneself over to pleasure is to become a slave to pleasure. To give oneself over to vices is to become a slave to your vices. So we should not believe that somehow obeying God or listening to his voice makes us less happy or, or live lives that are less fulfilled than others. As though we look at the world around us and say, man, I wish we could have what they have, but I'm on the straight and narrow road and I need to follow Christ. It's actually true that we should feel sorrow for those who have given themselves over to these lusts and pleasures. And I'm, why am I focusing on, on lust and pleasure? It's because it's exactly what our culture preaches to us, that this is really the enjoyable life. The life of enjoyment is a culture of hooking up with whomever you want, being married but never really being obligated to the one whom you're married. You can divorce whenever you want. You can give up on whatever you want. And you do all in the best interest of yourself. And what Christ 
says and the wisdom of the scriptures say is that is not a life that is well lived. That is a life lived in slavery and bondage to sin. So please, Christian, do not believe the lie that obedience to God is a half-lived life. Obedience to God is an exodus. It is a freedom from the sins to which you were once bonded to. Not just spiritual freedom, bodily freedom as well. Christ has delivered us from every pang. And ultimately, he says, even if death takes us and we are martyred for our beliefs, he gives us also ultimate reward. Both are true. So we see then an Exodus motif, the authority of Christ as present in the scripture. And then something that's related to Christ's authority, something that is clear from the Deuteronomy text, is the idea that we should listen to the voice of Jesus over all other voices. It shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And what happens when we listen to Jesus? Verse 25 of the text, Peter is expounding and continuing to do so. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. How do the peoples turn from their wickedness? What, what does John the Baptist say in the beginning of the Gospel of Luke? Repent, believe, and wait for the one who is coming, the one who's coming after me, who is not just going to baptize you in water, who will baptize you with fire itself. Turn to Jesus, because that's what Jesus says to do. There's no lie greater today being preached, unfortunately, from pulpits in the American church and also believed by a great number of people professing to be Christians, that what the voice of Jesus wants for you is for you to do whatever you want to do. What the voice of Jesus wants for you is for you to obey him. Because Jesus' voice is one and the same with the voice of the God of the Old Testament, who commands obedience from his people. And again, that obedience is not slavery. I just talked about that. That obedience is freedom, it's, but, it, but it is obedience. And sometimes, listening to the voice of God or listening to the voice of Jesus, who is God, feels like death to self and giving up on something that you really want or is really true of you. And that's exactly right. Because we are so entrenched in sin, we are so corrupted, that we, we, we wish and we want a clear voice to speak truth to us. That voice cannot come from our culture because our culture is entrenched in all the same things we are. So no news anchor that you listen to, no person that you hear from today who's a commentator who speaks on their own authority can really speak in any way that isn't bounded by their own culture and their own sensibilities. Even the wisest of men and women today who comment on the state of affairs in the world are still bounded by modern Western sensibilities. How is it that the prophets of the Old Testament can speak clearly to the sins of Israel, even though they are Israelites themselves? It's because they're not speaking whatever they think. They're speaking what God has told them to say, because God is not bounded by the sins of the Israelites, so he speaks truly to them. Maybe another way to, to say this, if we're thinking practically, is that 
in the same way that the Israelites in the Old Testament should have submitted themselves to the message of the prophets, because those prophets were sent by God to deliver to them a message of repentance and turning from sin, so too the church of God today must listen to the voice of Christ, as is recorded in the word of Scripture and as is proclaimed by his pastors and servants all throughout the globe, because it should not be their own message or opinions or thoughts that they preach. It should be Christ's redemption and his repentance that they preach. And this is the, the duty of every pastor. We've been, we've been studying First and Second Timothy on uh, Thursday nights uh, together as a church. And something that is clear from that text is Paul exhorts Timothy to preach, 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 but not to preach whatever he wants to say or whatever he thinks is creative, but he must preach the word. He must preach what God has commanded him to preach, lest he be an unfaithful servant. And so I'll say this again to you today. You as a church are, are obligated to obey the voice of your God, which, which means submitting yourself to his preaching and to his teaching. And you're also obligated to test every word by the one standard which was delivered. The very scriptures bind in whatever a pastor might say from a pulpit. Because again, we don't have some succession of apostles who tell us how it is. We have a written word which serves as the rule for the church. So as you hear me preach and exhort, something you should always be doing is asking yourself, is this consistent with the text which I have in front of me? And if it is, you must obey. And if it's not, you're free to ignore because it has no authority because it does not come from his voice. Okay, so there's at least three themes that I've picked up from the Old Testament so far. There's only one more that I'll hit on and then we will close. This last theme is the last Old Testament quotation, which is found in verse 25. We speak of the offspring that all the families of the earth are blessed by. This is a promise initially made to Abraham in Genesis 22. And as the story of Genesis unfolds, we're always asking the question as readers, who is the one who will finally bring, bring blessing to the earth? And, the, and we're supposed to have that earth in view from Genesis because God promises to Abraham blessing not just for Abraham and for his family, but for Abraham to his family and to the rest of the earth. So it should not be strange to us in the New Testament when in the Gospel of Luke and in Acts and elsewhere that this message and blessing comes from Christ not just to the Israelites, the offspring of Abraham, but also to the whole earth, the Gentiles also included in that. It's not some New Testament invention because not enough Israelites were being saved, and we really need to grow the church, so we've got to include Gentiles as well. Actually, from Genesis 22 and onward, the vision is that all the earth shall be blessed by God through Abraham and through his offspring. That offspring is Isaac, and later Jacob, and later Judah. And the promise goes to Judah, ultimately to David, who is the one who sits upon the throne. And that promise is affirmed to David, and he says, to your seed, to your offspring, I will not depart. The kingdom will not depart from you. But of course, David's seeds, they fail. They fall short until Christ himself comes, faithful and obedient, the offspring of David, as is predicted by Isaiah and others. And it is through him that all the nations of the earth will be blessed. How is that blessing received? It is received 
through repentance and faith. There is no way to be blessed by Christ apart from turning from sins and resting upon him in faith. No one can demand a blessing from God if they do not go through Christ, through a death to self, repenting of their ways and saying, help me, Lord, for I am a sinner. God wants to bless the earth. This is teaching from the scriptures. He wants to bless humanity. He wants them to taste and see his goodness. But that does not mean that any road which we take to achieve access to God is equally valid. Spiritual meditation and thinking after God is not the access to God which will provide blessing. Looking at ourselves and thinking about how good God has made us does not lead to any kind of blessing. The blessing is received in Christ because he is the one who blesses in himself. And that demands repentance and faith. Repentance is very simply taking all of the things which are not obeying the word of God and saying, man, I wish I was rid of all these things. Lord, help me to be broken over the sins in which I do and the sins in which I enjoy. Save me. And Christ is faithful to cleanse us of our sins, grant to us justification and righteousness, and then to minister to us as we continue to struggle in the Christian life by giving to us the Holy Spirit, the encouragement of the saints, his word which gives to us all of his promises, and he continues to minister his grace to us. So that the Christian life is repentance and following after Christ. It's certainly more than that. It's certainly other aspects of obedience. But at the core, the the center, the root and foundation of it is a unity to Christ, which is bounded by repentance and faith. That's why every week as a church, when we take the Lord's Supper, we profess these very things to be true. It is our repentance, our need for him, which is why we gather in worship, which is why we partake in the Supper. It is our need for his grace, which binds us to one another. And it is our desire to be blessed by him, which brings us to himself. And it's not a bad thing to want to be blessed by God. It's a powerful motivation, motivation for Abraham. It's the very thing which he has promised to be blessed by God. But it is wicked and sinful to demand that God bless us on our own terms. We have blessing offered to us by God through repentance and faith in Christ Jesus. And if we are in Christ, we are truly blessed. And we have, if we are not, there is no blessing from God for us. Let's pray. Father, your word is life itself. It gives to us guidance. It corrects our errors. It directs us into truth. It leads us gently by the hand because you are a God who is faithful to lead your people gently by the hand. Your faith, your atonement, your grace are what we need. Lord, grant to us faith. Grant to us forgiveness. Lord, cause us to hate our sins and to turn to you in our need. Help us to see our need, Lord. Today we ask and pray in your name. Amen.